This is Silly Punks. This episode meshes with Maya. I'm Robert J.E. Simpson. Spend enough time in cinematic dreamscapes and you will find yourself heading deeper into surrealism and the avant-garde. Within the work of filmmakers outside of a commercial studio-based system are bold experimentations and moments of pure cinema, pushing at the definition of the medium and introducing ideas which are frequently adopted by the mainstream. Among some of the most influential dreamscapes of the 20th century are the films of Ukrainian-born filmmaker Eleonora Derenkowska, better known to the world as Maya Deren. Darren's Meshes of the Afternoon, 1943, and At Land, 1944, are silent, experimental films that play with our sense of reality and being. They present us with filmic experiences which are enthusiastically debated by students and critics even today. They tend to leave audiences in one of two states, bewildered or bewitched. Darren's films are films concerned with movement and dance and disavowing the laws of physical space and time. They are ritualistic, magical, and packed with beautiful imagery. They're also short. Maya's body of completed film work runs for significantly under two hours. Joining me today as we try and navigate our personal responses to Maya Darren's cinema is a new voice to the Cinepunk podcast, but a long-time ally, Dr. Paula Blair. Paula is a freelance creative who writes about film, the creative arts and visual culture. She has taught film extensively in universities around the UK and is the host of Audio Visual Cultures podcast. So if you haven't heard of it, go check it out and uh, listen to more of Paula's brilliance. But uh, Paula, thank you for joining us and welcome finally after many, many months of talking about doing this to, to Cinepunk. Thank you so much, Robert. I have been really looking forward to this. I love our chats and it's <laughs> just a wee Incredibles reference there and uh but I do actually I love our chats I love talking about all of this stuff with you and it's really great to to do it a bit more properly with the podcast recording and um start what I hope will be years and years of wonderful collaborations <laughs> I guess I just get the, the, the in right at the start. It's like, yep, yeah, this is what I'm here for. I've got an agenda and you know, it's, it's, it's working through. I'm just muscling my way in. Oh, well, I mean, so, I mean, I'd wanted to do uh, Maya Darren basically mm. ever since we started doing the podcast. She was mm. one of the filmmakers that I thought we have to get around to. Her mm. stuff is important. Um, but I'm also very, very conscious of the fact that it can be quite difficult for people to get into. And certainly my first responses to her work um, were, <sighs> I said in the intro there that you either end up bewildered or bewitched. And I think I went from one to the other pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, do you remember how you first encountered her stuff and, and how you responded Mm, for sure. So like yourself, I did a film degree at Queen's University, Belfast, uh, which is where I first learned about Maya Darren. I did a module in my final year of my undergrad called Film and the Visual Arts. Mm-hmm. And so we watched some Maya Darren's for that. And I remember doing an essay about oneric activity, so dream-like activity in mm-hmm. these sorts of films. Um, you mentioned surrealism earlier, and Maya Darren for a long time has been heralded as an American surrealist, and I think there's a lot of problems mm. with that idea, so maybe that's something we'll tease out a bit later. But like yourself, I was very bewildered by mm. it all, 
uh, not just really with my Darren. That was probably the more accessible of the work that we were shown in that module. Um, a lot of it we felt just was really combative and some of it is deliberately combative was in, that in an, the avant-garde. That, that was an avant-garde module you were doing, so I'm it assuming was. it's very similar to the avant-garde module I also did at Queen's. Quite possibly. Um, which was <laughs> at times painful to get through it, it was it was it was definitely that it was definitely really painful and I mean I I don't like being negative about anybody but mm. it, it wasn't particularly taught well mm. um and none of us had a good time you know and you, you're not necessarily to have a good time but we all felt like we were in dire pain it was it was excruciating uh-huh. some of the screenings and we we just felt left bereft of information I actually felt like I would have been better just watching the films completely cold mm-hmm. than the, the 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 lectures weren't brilliant and um and that now this is the the this was taught by somebody who's not at Queens anymore uh, hasn't been for a very long time and um very very nice person mm. but I didn't find them a particularly good teacher and I think that was the the bug that meant I was always curious about the avant-garde and I never let it drop. That became something that was a real driving force in my own research because I needed to understand it. I needed to conquer it and understand it better, navigate it a bit better. And then when I ended up getting my first full-time but fixed-term teaching post in University of Aberdeen, um, and actually, I, ha- I had a practice run before, actually, uh, Desiree Raw, who's, who's still at Queen's, he um, introduced me to just a wider way of looking at experimental film mm-hmm. um, a bit later on when I was starting to teach myself. Um, you know, he was a really good mentor that way for me. Um, and I had a much broader understanding of it after studying for my BA and MA. Um, and it was when I started to teach myself mm-hmm. and teach it to other students. And I just was determined to make this really difficult topic accessible to students. I didn't want any student to, to feel that absolute pain <laughs> that we'd all gone through. <laughs> uh, I felt a real duty uh, and, a, and a determination to get them to not necessarily enjoy it, but to to access it and understand it in a way that just wasn't available to me when I was at their mm. stage. So when I was so when I got the job at Aberdeen, my specialist module for the honours course. So in, in Scotland, you know, they've got a four-year degree and for honours you do four years. So it was years three and four I was teaching together. Mm-hmm. And um, I did cinema and the American avant-garde. I looked specifically at North America and what was happening there in avant-garde filmmaking. Maya Darren is really central to that. She's a real driving force of any kind of movement that you Mm. can discern. Movement, again, is a problematic term, but it's for want of a better word. We haven't really got one. It's one of those. Um, And so it's just a way of accessing things. And so... Yes, teaching her and the women who came along after her and were enabled by what she had done, mm-hmm. that was something I was really determined to start to cover. 
So that was that's my story with my intellectual connection with my Darren. If you like, so that was a really big long ramble for you to get us started off. <laughs> We're doing this as live. I'm not cutting any of this stuff out. It's all going in there, Paula. That's, that's why I'm making jokes, Robert. I need people to say I'm an agent as well as a really clever, serious woman. So, uh, I mean, there's obviously a lot of stuff to unpack. Now, normally whenever we're talking about a film, um, we'll talk about, you know, it's plotting and then we'll kind of try and anal- analyze it. But it strikes me that when we're talking about Maya Darren, that's kind of redundant to a large extent. I think, you know, you've sort of, or, or mm-hmm. you've already picked up on the, the any association with surrealism is a complicated one when you're mm-hmm. dealing with someone like Darren. And I'm instantly thinking back to our recent conversations we've had on the show about John Cocteau mm. as somebody who, although some of his films are very definitely surrealist, insists he's not a surrealist. <laughs> um, you know, that, it, that it's not a surrealist film. And I know that Meshes has been, there's, there's reference to Cocteau as being a possible influence in terms of Meshes, although Maya said that she'd never seen the film, uh, Blood of a Poet, and uh, that was just purely coincidental. And then she watched mm-hmm. it later and said, okay, right, I can see why you think mm-hmm. that there's a connection because we are in similar headspaces. So this sort of feels like a nice, anyone who's at home, who's listening to this, who's watching along with us, I like to think people actually watch along with the films that we suggest. I hope they do. Um, but if they've just gone through Cocteau, to go to Maya Darren makes some sort of sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but so Meshes in particular, why why would we say that it is or isn't a surrealist film for you? What, what's the issue with that, that as a term? So the issue is one of um, quite deep ingrained misogyny, <laughs> to mm-hmm. be quite frank about it. Um, it it's more uh, a label that's been imposed upon her work by all the men. I mean, all the men. Um, So uh, now the big, the bigger, broader context of all this is so early 1940s in the United States, as you said, uh, young Maya, uh, well, she, she makes meshes of the afternoon and in that same year, uh, I think just to try and get a bit of context before we try and yep. really delve into the surrealist stuff. So 1943 is a massive transformative year for her um, because, you know, lots of stuff's happened in her life. Um, her father dies. Uh, she uh, she meets and collaborates with Alexander Hamid, who she made the film with, and he was a Czechoslovakian filmmaker working in Hollywood. They meet, they collaborate, they fall in love, they get married, they move back to New York after making that film so meshes is made in la mm. uh, in los angeles um and um so they're they're in the backdrop of hollywood you were in Tinseltown essentially mm-hmm. uh, on the fringes you know quite literally of um the center of power of filmmaking and in the 1940s especially at that time you've also got emigrate directors such as Alfred Hitchcock hasn't long moved over and started to make films. You know, he's making Notorious. He will soon make Spellbound in 1945, which is very heavily influenced by surrealism and psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. So 1940s US, especially in Hollywood, all the big film producers and the studio heads, they all become obsessed with Freudian psychoanalysis. And psychoanalysis. I can hear the sigh in your voice. Oh, you it's just quite boring. About this. <laughs> but I, 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 it, 
I don't want to derail you in in your flow, but I I mean I get the sense of like this frustration with the whole movement and the obsession that's coming. The imposition of it on other people. So there were people who genuinely were doing that. The surrealists and mm-hmm. um, you know the the bunch of them, the Europeans were all centered around uh, you know, in France in the nineteen twenties, and they were doing film as well as painting, writing, everything. Uh, they very much were directly engaging with that. Fine, mm. fair enough. Um, but then it gets imposed to other people because that becomes the dominant way of reading a film because everybody decides, oh, films are a bit like dreams, aren't they? So let's just um, apply psychoanalytic dream analysis to everything and everything suddenly is a phallic symbol and you can't move for phallic symbols in all these films. And um, sometimes a bread knife is just a bread knife. Do you know what I mean, Robert? Somebody said that to me on Twitter the other night. I was doing, I was, I think it was in the one of the Hammer conversations I was having, yeah. and I, I, I had deliberately taken a, a reading of the films as their vampire films and talking about them in terms of kink. Oh yes, uh-huh. I, and it just like once I start applied that reading onto, it, I couldn't help but see the stuff there. And someone exactly. basically made that comment that you know <laughs> a bread knife is just a bread knife. Sometimes it's like yes, yeah, sometimes it is, but also sometimes it's fun to sort of see, to to think about like what if this isn't and like i so i mean whilst i have ostensibly linked this in with surrealism and dreamscapes yeah um i, I suppose i should make it clear that for me i don't necessarily see meshes and at land and, and and her other films as 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 dream representations but as that sort of altered reality as that sort of subconscious mm. as as something else that's not what we um traditionally see you know and and dreamscape rather than dreams i mean in that sense of something that's slightly more ethereal or weird or altered there's just not it's 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 very hard to find a label for it and whenever you i I think that's where you know terms like avant-garde start getting used and then avant-garde possibly because of the problem yeah because of the possibly because of that module i did do you know um i sort of have a resistance to avant-garde as a term yeah and it's like, well, yes, but it, that that for me has always been quite a cutting term. It's quite, um, and I think it limits some of these films to end up being like it's it's somewhere out there rather uh-huh. than actually this is a great piece of art. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean that that's my own prejudice coming to the fore, and just to, so the you're aware but um yeah it's good to lay all that stuff out though i think that's important because it does cloud you know because if we're trying to present this to quite a general viewership say mm. uh, a potential viewership of people who don't have that formal film education that we've had you know we just want to say like this is a really interesting 15 minutes do you know it's just really interesting it's really gorgeous she mm. is stunningly beautiful she's captivating yeah you know it's just a really interesting thing. There's not really any story in her films. There's just a sequence of events that happen. And meshes, I think there is there is a, a, a quite a strong implication that the the the, the woman uh, there's no names, there's no characters, there's no actors who are credited in her mm. films. That's really important to note, actually. Um, but the the woman who is played by Darren herself, um, this woman character who's not necessarily Darren. But um, it's just the woman in the film. There is an implication that she goes through the routine of she comes home, 
there's stuff around the house, you see her in the domestic space, she sits down, she falls asleep. Then you see a, a repetition, but a, quite a distorted repetition of the same sequence of events. Then another distortion of the same sequence of events. And then, you know, do you know, it's, it's, it goes like that. So it goes a bit like the inception thing of you're jumping down through, as mm. you say, dreamscapes. But that's the only one of her films where there's any implication that there is a dream that you're seeing. But I think what you said about altered realities, that's really important mm. because her whole thing is reality and what is cinema, you know, what is cinema capable of doing to reality? And she, um, again, uh, you know, for your listeners, for your viewers, she was a film theorist as well as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was, you know, she was writing about concepts that much later, you know, much later, male white uh, theorists and philosophers, and not necessarily film ones, but you know, were publishing about her ideas, ideas she was having in the nineteen forties, fifties, and you know, uh, prior to her death in nineteen sixty one. She was publishing about these ideas in a really accessible way. Her writing is actually really accessible and enjoyable to read, and uh, she she was coming up with ideas about what you know, what cinema's function actually can be and what you can do with it and what it can do with reality. The power of cinematography and editing to give us a different way of seeing reality. That's really what she was experimenting with. She's mm. not trying to say, well you know, me taking a key out of my mouth instead of out of a purse as a sexual thing. She's not, uh, uh, you, you that's when the viewer is imposing mm-hmm. something on the images that she's creating rather than, um, you know, and I'm not usually one to shout out for authorial intent. I think, you know, I'm a sort of Bartesian school of the author is dead, long lives the viewer, the reader. Um, but in her case, I think, the reception to her work has been so clouded by this overbearing insistence that we psychoanalyze her work and Mm -hmm. that there's meaning in the images rather than that there's meaning in the montage. Mm -hmm. So um, I think there's just really interesting work trying to reclaim that a bit. I think just reading her own work is so fascinating, you know, especially when, if you do have a formal education and you've heard of people philosophers like Gilles Deleuze who you know was a philosopher about other stuff who wrote two books about cinema the the movement image and the time image I mean that's two 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 volumes two books she sums that up in this one article published in 1961 Mm -hmm. right just a few pages of uh, a journal article in Daedalus in 1961, <clears throat> sorry, 1960, published just uh, less than a year before her death in 1961. Mm-hmm. She basically outlines everything that's said in a more straightforward way, an accessible way, than he takes two books to do in French, flo- <laughs> floaty hand wavy French. So, 
Sorry to be rude, but... I didn't know you were still down on the French. But... I'm not. I'm not at all. It's just, you know, it's one of those things where, again, as a, as a film student, you, mm-hmm. you're told, it's insisted upon you that these theorists and philosophers, their word is God and you have to accept their genius. I could and never then, get into Deleuze at all. I <laughs> Oh, it's pain, again, it's painful. Um, right. And I, I got really into Deleuze in my master's. I was, you know, frameworking all over the place for his stuff. Right. Uh-huh. But then left alone for a bit, didn't PhD, but got a bit older, a bit more life experience, had to, had to teach in a university where they were still obsessed with Deleuze and had to revisit it all again. I was reading it going, what does this even mean? What are you saying? You're taking a paragraph to say something you could say in three words, mate. Come on here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's that frustrating. And then again, you know, I just read the, that article by Darren the other day. I should tell you the title of it, actually, if you want to find it. It's um, it's Cinematography, the Creative Use of Reality, right? And that, that whole article, look, it's so fascinating, Robert. It's just so, it's just... It's like, it's like getting into a warm bath, just reading her writing. Honestly, it's okay. I, ha- I have it in my essential Darren book. And yeah. I, and I've got another, I've another Darren book sitting around somewhere. Um, yeah. Like these are big. Like for me, her work, uh, I find her work so interesting and what she had to say interesting as a student. So beyond whatever we were talked about in the class, the images uh, captivated me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I'm like, I'd forgotten how beautiful she was until I was rewatching her oh, films this week. Just, and you know, yeah. this, this is somebody who has the looks of someone that could have been a star yeah you know that that could have captivated it in mainstream films without any yeah. bother um and you know at that point i was one of those students who went off and bought all the books as an undergrad <laughs> because i wanted to read more about what was going on but you know i I'm, I'm completely happy to take on that that notion that that surrealism is something that we we've sort of assigned to her perhaps erroneously and i get that um, psychoanalysis is a deeply problematic mm. way of encountering cinema um, and the problem is it's like quite an easy lazy way of doing I it as well so, at yeah. times and I can understand why people at like Cocteau and Darren are like well you know it's sometimes a bit interesting to hear what someone thinks of my work but this isn't what I'm doing exactly, she yeah. talks about experience in the same way that Cocteau talks about experience and I feel personally that when I watch her films, I've experienced something. What I don't always understand is what it is that I'm feeling mm-hmm. or why it is that I'm feeling. And I guess that is the montage. Yes. See, she. Uh, if we if we think about uh, what you were saying about the idea of ritual and what I had mentioned about if you describe meshes, if you render it right down, it's repetitive actions. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's essentially what ritual is. Yeah. And uh, and uh, if you if you find her work, and a lot of it is quite out there on the internet and everything, and it is very short. It's all about repeated actions, and she more and more moves over into dance films. She was a semi-professional dancer, uh, and so movement is hugely important, and it's gesture, action. Words aren't important. All her mm. films are silent. Um. There's there. There maybe there's maybe um later versions of her films that have an added music soundtrack by mm-hmm. her third husband, T J. Uh, what is it? T T J. 
Ito, I'm not sure how to pronounce the name, but um, he was a musician and they, you know, re-released some of her films with his soundtrack. So there are two versions of Meshes of the Afternoon, for example. Mm-hmm. One that's completely silent, no sound at all, and the other. Uh, and I mean, I, I suppose actually it's worth pointing out um, to people, these very experimental films, they wouldn't have been shown in a conventional cinema the way you'd see an, a, a usual film. You know, you would have been in the room probably with the projector, so actually the noise of a film projector taking over was part of the experience. The flicker of the light in the room mm-hmm. with you was part of the experience. So uh, and you might have been watching this in in a, a space in a house or you know a community center room or something like that. You know, they were they were uh, showing these things wherever they could get a space. You know, so you're not you have to take yourself out of the um the conventional viewing space, if you like. I mean, rewatching stuff last night, um, that silence of the films really struck me uh-huh. in a way that I think I was reminded then of why it was initially. I find some of the stuff quite bewildering, but also quite hypnotic mm-hmm. because there's something deeply uncomfortable. I sat with my headphones on last night watching this, listening to nothing, and there's something <laughs> quite disturbing about watching a 15 minute film, even a 15 minute film with no sound with because we're so caught up with this idea that film is accompanied by a score mm-hmm. that it's accompanied by dialogue you see people acting within her films but you you don't hear them the exception is divine horseman which has uh, a commentary track but divine horseman was edited after she died so exactly. it kind of doesn't count yeah uh, you know um so, like, I find that quite uneasy. I think that's the thing. Uneasy is is maybe mm-hmm. the thing that I feel mm-hmm. about watching her films. So that silence, that ritual, um, the presence of, <laughs> be honest, the presence of witchcraft and voodoo that that becomes increasingly mm-hmm. apparent mm-hmm. as you go through her work, mm-hmm. adds this really. I, I want to say uncanny, but then I know if I say uncanny, we are getting back into surrealism and Freudianism, and that that's not where we want to go. But there is mm-hmm. that that. Something discomforting about it for me. I mean, how how do you respond to it? You know about yeah. what you know about what you're taught, but how do you feel whenever you watch these films? I I feel curious, to be honest, um, because I'm drawn to how she achieves the effects that she does. You know, because there is something very odd and disconcerting about in at land. The very first thing you see is the sea rolling backwards, is backward motion. Um, uh, you know, she uses slow motion, she uses stop motion, she uses uh, quite a lot of canted framings, she um, records everything as it is in front of the camera. Mm. Uh, so that's your sense of reality. She's not, there's no special effects in there. Everything is as it is. It's just how is the camera moving? How is it recording anything? How has she put the shots together in the edit? That's the, the thing that makes it seem a bit unreal. And then it's that married up with the gestures because she takes quite ordinary everyday gestures but puts them in a strange place so she's trying to get some you know a a lot of times she's trying to get somewhere it's about moving through space Mm -hmm. and then that's very much connected with our experience of time passing so it's spatiality and duration you know is what we're, we're thinking about so uh it's 
her it's it's well the character when we say her we mean you know the character that she's playing it's how is that how is that person moving through space and negotiating with space? What kind of space is it? Is it domestic? Is it outdoors? Is it on a street? Is it on a beach? Is it finding yourself uh, crawling across this table where there are all these upper class people drinking and smoking and chatting and not seeming to notice her crawling across the table? You know, because um, even just to crawl, Mm-hmm. It's maybe not something that ordinary for an adult, but if you think about, well, when would you crawl in your domestic space? If you're trying to find something that you've dropped or if you're you, you trying to get at something awkward on the floor, you know, it's actually quite an ordinary thing to do in certain circumstances, mm-hmm. but it's something that she performs. She takes it out of its ordinary circumstances and performs it in this odd way you know you wouldn't do it on top of a dinner table but you would do it if you're trying to find something you dropped on the floor do you, do you know what I mean so um she yeah so the so odd situations come from actually quite everyday rituals that we would partake in and then as you say it increasingly as her films progress she develops more and more her idea her interests in ritual or sorry in voodoo mm-hmm. uh, vo- voodoo rituals um, uh, but she also goes back and more to dance, you know, her interest in dance. And she actually is less and less appearing in her films. Other people are appearing in her films and other people, because she becomes increasingly more networked with people, mm-hmm. actually. You know, her very first film is, is her and Alexander Hamid because they're the only two people I know doing this stuff. So they just try it out. You know, it's one of those films, but like you sort of Orson Welles, Citizen Kane, you know, it's, it's just have a go, lads. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that's the one you're getting remembered for. But actually her, her later films are much more complex, are involving a lot more people. She gets more networked. Um, you know, so there's more and more of a community. So I suppose well, that's that's again, it's not, I'm not necessarily directly answering your question, but as I say, it's curious, and I want to find out about these things. So you start you start breaking it down, and I think when you're free mm. of phallic symbols and the surrealist imposition on her films, you start to think about actually, this is there's something really interesting going here with the passage of time and how she depicts that you know and, and how we use moving through space as a marker passing through time and then what happens when you she calls it telescoping um you use the camera like a telescope to uh, on time right mm-hmm. so you use slow motion to really study the movement and what is movement well it's a way of moving through time as well as space so by stretching the time you can really study the way the movement is happening and that's coming from that very modernist and she is very broadly modernist so i mean that that idea of the avant-garde being quite a, a problematic term very broadly this is definitely of the modernist tradition say mm. um you know where there were experiments and at the very early days of cinema, there are experiments in painting and photography with, well, how do we depict movement in a still image? You know, she's in a way going back to that, mm. where she's slowing down the speed of the image so that you can really study how the movements are. So when you, in, a, in meshes, when she's running up the stairs, it's in slow motion. When she's in that land, when she's pulling herself up the deadwood, it's in slow motion. She can really study the gestures that her body's making. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, you know, when you when you look at it that way, actually there's something a bit deeper. There's something more philosophical going about how humans experience space and time. And the cinema can reveal things about that. And that's what she's getting at, you know. And I think that's what cracked it for me is when I really studied her writing mm-hmm. and got a handle on that and just totally ignored all the... I mean, there's still, I mean, there's still, you still can psychoanalyze, you know, you can still, absolutely, there's enough material in there. But I just, for me, it's been more interesting to look at how she works with space and time, how she uses the the technology and the techniques, you know, what shots does she put together to create, um, you know, and it's montage editing as opposed to just when we, when we say edit, it's, this shot beside that shot, um, whereas she will do montage to create a different meaning. Mm-hmm. So this shot with that shot, we mean take really, but you know, they they can mean something bigger than the two of them separately. Mm-hmm. Is the idea of montage, if that sort of makes sense? But um, you know, that's where you start to get the match cutting, the match on action but across different spaces, but they they have unity in movement and that unity in movement gives them unity in time. So you'll see her arms start to move and then it will cut to a shot where her hand comes into the frame and her hand's in a different location from where you first saw her arm. And that she develops that that's that happens in a very small way in meshes where she's walking. So mm-hmm. there's a close-up on her feet and she's on a beach and she's on the street, then she's stepping up the stairs, you know. That's developed a lot more in that land. And it happens again in ritual and transfigured time in um uh choreography for cinema, uh where there's this transposition of the body but the body is fluid and moving through space and it's the sort of thing that you do that now with green screen and you would film the dancer or the actor all in one go and then you'd through mm-hmm. cgi change their backdrop but she was doing that by re-performance so again back to ritual back to mm-hmm. repeated action back to how you build community through repeated action and community through voodooistic ritual. So it's coming back to, she argues it in her anagram. She argues that what she's trying to achieve, and her anagram was published in 1946, you know, so she's thinking about this stuff very seriously, very early. Uh, You know, she's saying like, yes, absolutely, you can, you can, you know, there is something definitely psychological going on. She doesn't deny that. Hmm. But what she's saying is the psychology of it is actually the psychology of something deeper, what it is to be human rather than what it is to be me. You know, it's it's what it is to have community and together have repeated actions. And what do those, what are the implications of those repeated actions? on just how we live our lives you know it's it's bigger questions it's part of being something bigger than yourself rather than just obsessed with yourself you know the egotism of psychoanalysis I think is is what she's getting at and that has brought it alive for me in ways that psychoanalytical readings just make me nod off to be honest (laughs) (laughs) 
I, I mean, thinking about it, there's lots there to, to, to potentially pick apart and to, to discuss, but um, I had completely forgotten about those psychoanalytical readings of meshes when uh-huh. I was watching it. So when I was looking at the key and the knife that appear in that, I literally saw them as a key and a knife. I didn't mm. think it was time to unlock. Now, there's a couple of shots where she's caressing her own body. Oh, yeah. There's the partners caressing her. Now, that strikes me as obviously sexual, but I mm. hadn't necessarily read a sexual undertone into everything else because it seems to end up, that whole film ends, it seems, in a suicide. Mm-hmm. So, for mm-hmm. me, the knife is about murderous intent it's you know that's tied in with that kind of violence but i guess it's also representative of of cutting you know this is is film so you can't help but draw a parallel between the razor blade that that you use to splice your film and a knife within a film that's very heavily reliant on those cuts Mm -hmm. um but that's my kind of response to it at land is is i mean i i find um the film's quite trippy, I think is the only word that really sums it up. So for anyone who's not familiar with their work and is going, this is a bit dry for me. Um, <laughs> it is, it, they are, they are quite trippy experiences in the mm. right frame of mind. They're worth indulging in to see where it takes you. Mm. And there's something about those juxtapositions, about those cuts in Atland that have me thinking about the way that comedy ended up working for certain artists in like the 50s and 60s. It's like something you could see Spike Milligan doing mm. for comic effect mm-hmm, to jump mm-hmm. between, you know, climbing up a, a a piece of wood on a beach and then suddenly like a child peering over the edge of a table before mm. you then go and crawl across it. Like that, is, it, it makes no sense, but it does make a sense. And there's, a, there's, there's something there. And I think our desire to try and find meaning and sense of everything mm-hmm. is to lose a sense of actually what's going on to how it's making you feel and to you know there is something else that's at play and you mentioned egotism as well um and about the egotism of the of sort of the surrealism and the freudian readings and all the rest of it and there is something about her removing herself from her films as a physical presence that mm-hmm. that strikes me as non-egotistical and again you know you you said at first it's like she was an incredibly beautiful person who the camera loves and that just seems so odd to have that to be like in, in our 21st century mindset in a filmmaking kind of context to have someone that is physically uh attractive to the camera to the viewer to be building on their body of work and removing themselves from that. Mm-hmm. But then that 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 possibly is where, bi- I mean, I don't know how much the biography of Maya Darren's life influences that because I know that her final years were not happy necessarily. Like she did not end her days in a great place. Um, so is there some sort of element of withdrawing from those expectations from that male gaze in a way um and also dealing with potentially elements of um self-loathing um body dysmorphia i don't know mm-hmm. I, I i just feel or at least there feels like there should be a, there's some sort of conversation potential in that i don't know mm-hmm. well i think what you pointed out actually about the end of meshes is, is already really important because there's a really 
violent denial and refusal to give in to the male gaze. And this is before people have really formalized a term mm. for that. Uh, but you know, it's already very much happening. You know, uh, the, you know, because the end of the, the the last sequence of the film is that is the idea that the partner, so Alexander Hamid, turns up at their home. And we don't know if what we've just seen is the last fitful dreams of the woman, but he's turned up and what he witnesses is her in a chair and she's very violently caught up and dead. And, um, you know, she's she's sliced up, you know, she's mm. um, her face is disfigured. You know, there's uh, she's taken the beauty away and she's taken access to her body away. So there's already that denial and it's not a I'm just refusing you I don't consent this it's I'm gonna mess this up you're not even mm -hmm. gonna get a pretty image out of my death you know um so I think the though she's already working through a lot of that mm -hmm. stuff whether she even realized it or not but you know I think she was I mean her her master's degree was in English literature and poetic symbolism so I have a feeling she knew what she was doing she was very heard about the stuff I think she really knew her stuff she was incredibly intelligent you know and I mean I I don't know too much about the biography of her later life I mm -hmm. as far as I'm aware she died of multiple brain hemorrhages what led to that I don't really know um but I know that when she moved back to New York, she was central to such a massive network of people and she enabled people and there was community built around her and she was a driving force of, uh, of promoting experimental cinema and just the arts in general. She was a real champion of the arts. The people around her were women who were artists of all kinds. Um, you know, she was friends with um, Phoebe Barron, who was one of the partnership who uh, I think they won an Oscar for their soundtrack for uh, Forbidden Planet, the electronic mm -hmm. soundtrack in that. And they went on to collaborate then with filmmakers like Shirley Clark, who uh, came up after Maya Darren and um, probably wouldn't have <clears throat> had so much of a, a start only for Maya Darren paving the way. Uh, Joyce Wheeland as well, who was married to Mark's, uh, Michael Snow. Mark Snow is a totally different person who wrote the theme tune for The X Files. <laughs> It's always in my brain. <laughs> and Just prove your nerd credentials. <laughs> happily, happily. Uh, so you know that the, uh, huge amounts of, of people. There was a massive, massive network. You know, because people we think about New York uh, in the mid twentieth century, and we maybe think about Andy Warhol's factory. Okay, this is well before all of that. This was mm. late nineteen forties, all the way through the nineteen fifties. This is well before all of that. And a lot of the, the younger ones who came up through their association with Maya Darren ended up as part of Andy Warhol's trip. You know, she she was galvanic, you know, uh, and she was a real promote it was really interesting that the paradox of her is that she's very anti-commercialism mm -hmm. so it's not that she's uncommercial she was actively anti-commercial 
you know, it was arts for everybody type thing, but she fiercely promoted it and, and she wanted everybody to see it. So she was marketing, she was promoting, but not in a commercial way. She was making things happen as much as possible. Um, she would have wild parties in her house. She would start spontaneously dancing. She had, you know, descriptions of her wearing, you know, very loose bohemian clothes and her hair was wild and she had cats everywhere and everybody was welcome. Her house was your house and she just wanted everything to be alive with creativity. That's as much as I know about her biography. I mm. haven't read too much about exactly what was going on in her later life. I mean, she had quite a few marriages in a short space of time. Um, but again, I know relatively little about that because um, uh, I am a nerd and it's to give me all the juicy film aesthetic stuff, please, is <laughs> my interest. Biography matters nothing. <laughs> matters no, a bit, but, well, you know, it's it, not my it, main thing. <laughs> I mean, I was aware of, uh, so reading up what little I could, I mean, I was aware that um, there was a brain hemorrhage that she died of at a very early age. Yeah. But that was partly contributed to by malnutrition. Yeah. And um, when you hear that, that, I mean, without being able to explore much more about that, the suggestion or the inference that I get from that is either she's in poverty and not looking after herself or, you know, there's something else psychological that is, which why I suggest things like body dysmorphia and mm -hmm. things like this and knowing that she's withdrawing from a screen presence trying to find photographs of her is ridiculously hard I mean there was looking for stuff and everything I see is the publicity for those three or four films that she mm -hmm. makes in the 1940s there's mm -hmm. very little beyond that which again strikes me as odd for someone who is a visual artist and there's also something I think one of the reasons another one of the reasons I'm attracted to her work um, is that she is somebody who doesn't finish stuff. <laughs> it's like Orson Welles and myself. I mean, I'm not saying that I'm like Orson Welles or Maya Darren, other than I have far too many projects that never get completed and nobody gets to see. Yeah. So we have this bun these bunch of films and snippets of things that she was working on for years that have never seen fruition. Mm -hmm. And there's something about that mindset as well that I find fascinating. Particularly because she's clearly a very savvy individual mm -hmm. who has very clear ideas about what her cinema should be doing. And yet we're deprived of having more of it mm. because she doesn't finish the stuff that she's doing. Because I wonder if this is a legacy of not, you know, we're only really learning properly about conditions such as ADHD and autism, you mm -hmm. know, that uh, that's only starting to become more nuanced now. Yeah. And what if it's something like that? What if it's an, an ability to just focus on something for long enough? Or is there, you know, have there been economic factors that mean that you can't complete because uh, just thinking that because that's what I'm in at the minute. It's like I'm so worried about where when's the next pay gig coming that I can't settle into just right. Let's just do that big project I've been planning for five yeah. years. You know, um. So it, as well as is there neurodivergence at play or you know any other kind of factors? Because I mean, I, I don't again. I don't want to psychologize her because I don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm I'm having to rely on the historians in the States who can access the archives and have the testimonies of people who knew her. But, you know, can we ever really know? 
Well, I mean, if, if somebody happens to be listening or watching this yeah. and, and has some answers or more insight into this, like, please do get in touch. Mm-hmm. I guess it's the thing for me is about th- things like this, things like knowing that we are left with a fragmented mm-hmm. body of work um, make me reflect on that. Mm-hmm. And I guess they make me reflect on myself. It's part of the experience for me. Mm-hmm. You know, watching her films r- makes me feel a particular way. That's my, you know, emotional, intellectual response to her cinema prompts Mm -hmm. a certain reaction from me. But then looking at her work and then trying to look into more of her work and finding out that it feels like there's gaps. Mm -hmm. Like you're sitting there wondering why did Divine Horseman not get shot and not get Mm -hmm. finished? Because, you know, she goes off to Haiti for 18 months. She's given a whack load of money to go and do this filming and she does it and she comes back with the footage. And it sits for 15 years, mm. you know, and then she dies. And like, they're, they're, it strikes me there's something else going on or something like Witch's Cradle, which again, I was watching yesterday, which was done for as part of an exhibition. I think it was the Guggenheim mm. were behind that one. And it's a really interesting stuff. It's packed full of beautiful, I mean, for, for anyone who's a kind of occulty goth out there, it's packed full of lovely occulty gothy kind of visuals and a lot of repetitions and it's it, it it is again quite hypnotic and quite fascinating but i'm also aware that it's not a finished piece of work and i don't know it, there is something fascinating about a work about saying a work in progress mm. and that, that the thing that has been made public is the work in progress mm. not the sign sealed this is the final version of and so while we get quite i get quite precious about like re-editing and reversioning things mm-hmm. at times but there's almost an invitation within that to try and do something more to kind of i mean is this part of her democratization of the work i don't know but these are the questions that i start asking myself this is how i'm responding to it they're good questions yeah always keep them wanting always keep them <laughs> wanting something Right. And it's interesting. She was fascinated by mythology as well. And mm. she herself has become legendary. You know, she has become, it's the idea of Maya Darren that we talk about. And, you know, even just the, the changing of her name to Maya and the implications of what that name means and it means different things in lots of different languages and different mythologies and things you know there's a greek messenger who's called maya you know in the ancient mythologies there's um means mother and i think sanskrit uh it's there's a meaning of it in buddhism uh, i think it's illusion something like that uses all these things you know she's she's quite carefully creating a persona of Maya mm. Darren around herself. She's not Eleonora anymore. And she's, she, you know, she, she perf- in her life performs, I think, quite a lot you know, with mm. the parties and the way she dresses, the bohemian lifestyle, the different marriages. You know, there is a performance of Maya Darren that I imagine must have happened like we all do, but it's exaggerated. You know, what, at what point does it tip over into camp? And at what point, you know, do we believe what's been passed down about her stories? Because there's these legends about her, mm-hmm. as well as what's actual history about her. And, you know, so I think part of the mystery is part, in a way, part of the tragic fun of it, to put it in a weird way. Um, 
So I get so that I suppose that's my response to I think you're asking really, really good pertinent questions. Mm. I don't know if any of us can ever have a definitive answer. No, and I don't necessarily know that I want an answer for yeah, them either. It's more interesting to speculate and imagine. And it's it's it is about I mean for me a lot of about film a lot about art is about how then we respond as individuals to it and it's about what it reveals in ourselves and I feel that something along the line here I'm watching her films and experiencing her films uh, enlightens some aspect of my life and I would hope that other people are similarly enlightened about their own. Um, the one thing I, I I don't want to leave our pod today without touching on, um, is her nationality. Mm. Um, now, for folks who are listening or watching who may be thinking I'm making a deliberately political move, it's the 4th of March as we record this, 2022, and um, I realise that we are discussing a, a fantastic female filmmaker who is, <laughs> is from Ukraine, uh, the very week that Ukraine is getting blown to bits by Russia. Mm-hmm. And that was not a you know a deliberate intention. We we discussed about doing this um, yeah quite a while ago yeah <laughs> before, before before Putin invaded exactly. Um, and it's and it fits within the terms for anyone who's watching mm-hmm. and listening to the stuff regularly will know that this fits in with everything else that we're doing at the moment. Um, but it strikes me that there is something possibly there to to be teased out about our nationality. I mean, when you're talking about montage, I mean, I think about. You know, the works of Eisenstein and Vertov exactly. and people like that who are doing this amazing montage work that's very cinematic cinema. Yes. And she seems to be continuing and evolving that and shaping into something different again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but so she's born in April 1917, just before Ukraine becomes a state in its own right. So it's still part of Russia, becomes Ukraine very, very quickly. So she's Ukrainian. Then she moves over to America when she's five. Mm-hmm. But from everything I've said, from everything I've seen and read about her, she was still very connected with her Russian origins. Mm-hmm. Um, not connected with her Jewish faith that she was born into, and mm-hmm. really in any way, shape, or form. She didn't talk about. It. She didn't want to get involved with it. Um, she was more interested in voodoo. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Um, yeah. But her parents, uh, I think, left. Ukraine because of anti-Semitism. Because of the pogroms, yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. So, I mean, that this is something just, just to be aware of. And I think that mm-hmm. um, it is it is fascinating. But how much does that Sovietness, I think, come through in her work? I mean, do you have any mm-hmm. sort of sense of that? or? Well, it's interesting because she's a, she's born and she's a young child at the time when those experiments were happening. And uh, to be honest... I mean, I think that a lot of, say, Eisenstein's films were probably getting over to the States, but I don't know exactly when. And, Mm. you know, because we're talking about that interwar period as well in the 1920s and 30s. I mean, I don't know enough about that period of cinema to know about what was circulating where and what who would have been aware of what and you know, but uh, but she did go to school. She did go um, as a teenager. She did go uh, back to Europe to go to school. Her parents divorced when she was quite young, and her life did become split between Europe and uh, and the United States. And she studied, I think, in Switzerland. I'm not hundred percent, but you know, she did have that connection back to Europe, and there w- would have been a lot of circulation 
of cinema then it's it's quite possible that she might have encountered it but as a teenage girl would mm. she have been watching eisenstein i really don't know <laughs> would anybody i don't know um okay, given a choice so, i mean i think it's a, i think it's all interesting to just lay out there and then if people are interested in poking at those questions then go for it um but i think that's that's a really good uh uh, thing to point out actually is that she she probably is part of a lineage whether she knows it or not and mm-hmm. I mean even um but I suppose so in uh, as I mentioned a little bit earlier a lot of these techniques were already maybe coming through in quite small ways in Hollywood and the mainstream because I mean the likes of again Hitchcock trained in Germany mm-hmm. in the Weimar period in Germany and picked up a lot from German expressionism and that that that's really that really comes through a lot in his films and he was very semi-literate and aware so you know in the mainstream the jobbing directors who were hired by studios because it was all very different back then um it was the studios hired you and you did what you were told uh, and then you find a way to be artistic within all of that, you know, and and, and, and that's not the only example. There were huge amounts of emigrate directors coming over during these years because of the the, the problems in Europe at the time. Mm. Um, you know, it all started much earlier than, um, you know, sort of the late 30s. Uh, it was all happening, you know, already in the 20s and people were, were fleeing, you know, because they could see, a lot of them could see what was coming. But um yeah, so I think it's definitely important to to just point out, and there could be something in that for sure. Um, but you know, experiments with editing to create meaning weren't exclusive either to no. the Soviet Union. So um, yeah, I mean, and and also it wasn't just Eisenstein. People like Sigurd Vertov and uh, and his his brothers, you know, were all working on that and actually it was his wife was doing a lot of the editing for their films and you know so, so on and so forth whole whole other whole other thing to that's a, another thread for you to go off on is oh, that's, that's, that's one we're going to be exploring at some point i keep threatening the the rest of the team that you know you're getting some soviet film at some point man with the movie camera is fascinating i love it it's my favorite film of all time so great so it's, so great it's fundamental fundamental and, and feels very fresh and modern yeah even yeah. you know a hundred years later yes um but then that's i suppose what i love about a lot of this film that's what i love about this the fact that her work is silent yeah makes it almost i won't say transcendental but it's, i don't think that's the word i'm actually looking for it, it 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 is something that's able to cross barriers in a way that you know if you stick a dialogue on it you you code it in a particular way in a particular yeah. language and so it's can, more universal yeah and you can screen it in a way that you could you could put whatever music you wanted to. If you have a look on YouTube, because uh, people put their thumbs up on YouTube all the time, um, there are people who have created their own scores yeah. for my darn films, and I haven't really bothered listening to any of those because I just think there's a massive issue there with copyright and stuff. But I don't know. But um, but you know, people are exploring their creativity, and maybe she'd be quite open to that as long as they weren't commercializing her work I, I, I but you know not 100 mm. percent. but you know people do that they make up their own scores for films that never were never intended to have scores um at land i don't think as far as i'm aware never had a score imposed on it by her you know mesh is dead mm. it was released 
the original version is 1943 and then in 1953 she has by then married T.J. Ito and his score you know, the film was re-released with his score on it so have you listened to that one have you listened to I haven't I, did, I sort of deliberately went to as early a version as I could find for this stuff so yeah. I've listened to the pure stuff I've, li- I've heard some of his other things because um, I know he did a lot of other music as well uh-huh. um, and I was watching oh, I was watching one of the films that actually has a score last night as well and it sort of threw me the fact yeah. that after sitting in silence for an hour, you know, to then suddenly go, uh-huh. oh, there's sound, and then sound is obviously yeah. part of an emotional part of the experience. I think what stripping of a score allows you to do is to imprint your own um, sense yeah. of self on it, yeah, definitely. in a way that you're not being led in quite the same way. Mm-hmm. Because we all respond to images differently. And I guess that's why some people see a knife as, as something else rather than just a, a, a knife. Um, because that's their response. Mm-hmm. Um, to, yeah. Yeah. But the, the scores are the, the intended scores, anyway. Mm. They're quite pared back because there's a lot of minimalism going on. So if you think about the avant-garde in or experimentalism in music in the mid 20th century, you've got people like John Cage, who I think was, you know, part of that circle of people who knew Mayadair. And um, so they'd certainly have been aware of each other. Uh, and so you're talking really minimalistic, pared back, a beat occasionally sort of drawn out jazz almost um so maybe bongo drums used very sparingly and mm. clarinets oboes um again tones from those used quite sparingly then maybe a little flurry of something and then silence and then you know it, it's quite staccatoed and spaced out and then a bit of action and then quiet again and you know, it's something sort of, again, curious, intriguing mm-hmm. about it. Um, and when there's action happening, you know, so if you imagine in meshes where it seems like the house is rolling around mm-hmm. and it's, you mm-hmm. know, Darren is doing all these contorted stretches and things and the camera's just, you know, doing really interesting movements at canted angles. I mean, there's not, there's no special effect there. It's it's all them. I mean, it's, I've been watching a lot of uh, original series Star Trek, you know, and they're having to pretend to shake. But, and it's just like, oh, lads, you have no idea. Like, you need to watch the Maya Darren because <laughs> she makes a house look like it's rolling around <laughs> just by, you know, these quite simple techniques and it looks real, you know. Uh, but yeah, when that sort of stuff happens, it'll get really, the music will get really urgent, you know, and oh, stuff's happening, ah, you know, uh, and then it'll calm down again. So, you know, there's, so, yeah, the music's a bit like that, but it is quite pared back. So I don't know, it's, it's maybe worth giving it a go, but I'll, I give, pref- I'll give an explore later if I can find yeah, it. Yeah, but I do, I do prefer the silent to be honest. I find the music is intrusive and leading, as you say, it's nice to just, how am I feeling today? What am I bringing to this today? Uh-huh. And just really concentrate on what you're seeing as well as what you're seeing, how that makes you react, you know? So, yeah. But it's, but it's interesting to do both. Any final thoughts? <laughs> Too many. 
<laughs> too many. There's there's just some more. Like uh, I think these are really they're short, but they're quite complex films. They're really interesting films, as you say. They're very beautiful films, and you know they're mercifully short. <laughs> there's a lot of avant-garde cinema that is not merciful in any <laughs> way. It's super long. It's super painful. This is the most accessible way to dip your toe into experimental artists cinema if you have been just not interested in engaging with that for i think my darren is the place to to just ease you into that's really fascinating i think it's a, a fairly mm. decent summary i mean <laughs> as i said at the start she's someone who I have found initially bewildering and then was bewitched by. Mm. And the more that I've explored her her work, the more interested I've become. And I don't always connect with it. I mean, there are days where I watch her films and I feel very uh, disengaged and cold. Mm. And that may in part be the fact that there isn't a soundtrack to, to set my mood. So maybe we should just stick some headphones on next time and play mm. something else while I'm watching them. But Yeah, they don't tell you how to feel. No, but her imagery is is stunning imagery that's mm. used. Her her use of the camera is, is fantastic. Her her technique is fascinating. Um as a presence she has an abundance of it. And you know, I'm also happen to be quite fond of, of sort of the macabre and there's mm. a healthy element of that in it and I'm fascinated by the stuff about witchcraft and voodoo. And then she also writes, and her books are and her writing is well worth. I think there's two, mm. two books that she wrote plus a number of essays which have mm. been collected a couple of times. Mm -hmm. So she's someone who is worth exploring at the same time. And if you get into meshes, and if you happen to be you know watch it for the first time, and you're interested in reading some of her stuff. Um, her essay "Cinema as an Art Form" um, was one that she wrote just after completing meshes, um, and side by side they may give you a better in than we can do in the course of this podcast um but hopefully you know folks are interested you know we, we get so bogged down with traditional narrative storytelling we get so bogged down with feature films and with the studio system she is somebody who's far 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 away from that and as you said somewhere earlier you know she's someone who democratizes the cinema experience and she's interested in encouraging other people to pick up a camera and experiment and i have to say in the same way that i was watching cocteau in the last few weeks and feeling inspired by cocteau re-watching maya darren's work has made me want to take my camera back out and shoot some mm, new stuff whether i do or not is another question entirely mm. but i feel right now that i could do something mm -hmm. and that a lot more is valid than we sometimes think I think so, yeah. So, Paula, thank you very much for, for joining us today. Thank you. Anything you want to, do you want to plug sorry. anything before you go? <laughs> I I just want to say a really big thank you. I have been wanting to do something like that, like something like this with you for ages. And I, I hope it's been really interesting for people. Um, I really hope that we can do something like this again. And love to have you on Audiovisual Culture, which is available on all good podcasts platforms uh, and is excellent I must say even if I make it myself and um yeah just a, yeah just a, I love city punks big fan and yeah just really love this thank you for having me
Pleasure. Thank you. And I think I think sort of you know you you someone who's taught these films um, at university, so you have an insight and a way of dealing with it then that I wouldn't have thought about approaching. You know the subject well, so mm-hmm. uh, I'm glad to have that insight as well mm-hmm. and to help us navigate and hopefully just tinkle somebody's taste buds uh, and get them to go out and try something new. Um, folks, if you've enjoyed the podcast, uh, tell your friends. You know the, the score by now. Uh, like, subscribe. You'll find us on all good podcast platforms. If you haven't, if you just stumbled upon this for the first time, hit the subscribe button on whatever you're on and uh, check us out in future. You can get all our stuff on our website as well, cinepunk.com, and we're on various social media platforms. Do check us out. Uh, we'll be back in your ears and eyes again very soon. Paul, thank you very much. Folks at home, thank you very much as well. Ooh.